Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. We're really glad to see everybody here this morning. It's just so good to see you. So good to be with you today. Um, so good to worship with you today. And as we do that, as we prepare to hear God's word today, I want us to be conscious of all the things that are trying to distract us. All the things we have to do after we leave, all the things that we brought in here, all the things that can keep us from really hearing what God wants to say. Because I believe it's in a very important message this morning, not just because I'm delivering it, but because of how I see people wrestling with this issue of choice and how do we make choices and how do we make them for the right reason? How do we make them in the right anticipation? How do we have an active gospel imagination around that? So in preparing ourselves to hear the word, let's take some time to set aside everything else. Let's take some time just to set the to-do list aside and be present here to God the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get into the message. God, the Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need of the grace to hear your voice, to lay down our lives so that you may give us your life, life for here, life for forever. We confess our dullness, our idolatry, our selfishness, and our arrogance. In professing to be wise, we are made fools. In professing to be good, we are profane. In professing to be whole, we are utterly scattered. Yet we are not without hope. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your gospel. Our hope is in your loving kindness towards us. May we walk in the names that you call us not the names of the world. You call us forgiven, beloved, and holy. Teach us to walk in those names. Teach us to call others the same. God, the Holy Spirit, now give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and obey, and minds to discern you and all that is good and true and beautiful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Fortunately, it happens to me less and less as I get older, but it still happens much more often than I want it to. Usually it happens when I'm tired or not paying enough attention to my emotions or my health, but sometimes it happens when things are going great, when I mean I am rocking and rolling and feeling like I have it all nailed. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? It's that feeling right before you do or say something you know is wrong. It's almost like an outer body experience, right? Like you see yourself about to say these words or do something and part of you is going, And yet, those words come out. 
And it may not just be the cutting comment or that impulse purchase, the unnecessary additional glass of wine or the click on the image that leads to click and click and click or that small razor cut in the skin that leads to another and another. All the things we do that we know are wrong, harmful to ourselves, harmful to others, that bring pain, that bring isolation, all those things we do, but we seem helpless at times to stop. And here's the thing, we know the punishment is coming, we know there's going to be consequence, and we almost welcome it because there's no denying our guilt. Somehow, it all, it's, a, it's a sick way, it almost gives us a feeling of control being punished, knowing that we are in control, somehow deserving, somehow inviting, somehow manipulating that. And we can't break out of it. We can't seem to break out of it. We even think at times that we are doing something for God by accepting these consequences as punishment with that. But what if there was another way? What if there was another way to frame the story to understand the consequences of our actions, not just as punishment or reward, threat or bribe, but to understand that God, in creating us in God's image, is inviting us to have the mind of God. That part of being created in the image of God means that we are able to discern the consequences of our actions as a way of becoming more formed into that Imago Dei, more into that image of God, more understanding these things, and not living as the world would have us, as either slaves or rebels. You see, the thing that's going to set us free from that, the thing that is going to not only give us freedom from this, but keep us walking in freedom, is when we understand how things are working, why they're working. And we are free to make those choices with that. Because i got to tell you, as we looked at this this week, this story, it was hard not to just see another formula. Hey, do this, you get good things. Do this, you get bad things. And listen, let me tell you, I'm not denying there is. There's definite consequences to the actions here. But we're going to look at a specific story in God, in, in, the, in the story of the people of Israel. We talked about last week how the people, God never wanted Israel to have any other king but God. But the people said, no, give us a king. Samuel, the prophet, said, look, you don't want a king because kings are going to do this. They're going to do this to you. The people said, no, we want a king. And guess what? They got a king. And guess what? The king did all those things. 
And now we get to this part in the story where the kingdom, they've just all Israel, Israel was together for three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, before it split. When we think about the kingdom of Israel, you may think of this glorious time, this rule that lasted. It was a blip in history. I mean, a blink and you miss it. Snap your fingers and it's gone. Blip. And then we have an extended history of pain living out the consequences. Why? Because God was just mad? Because God was just punishing them? Because God enjoys inflicting pain when people screw up? I mean, that's often how we feel. We may not say it quite that blunt, quite that harshly, but that's how we feel. Or was there something different? Was there a gift in this? Was there grace in this? Grace for the people of Israel then and grace for us now to learn, to be able to discern, to be able to set, be set free from the mindset on the law of sin and death and have the mind of grace formed in us. Well, let's look at the text and see if we can discern this. So, as we said, we had Saul, then David becomes king because he was really the one that God wanted in the first place. Not that he wanted a king, but he was acquiescing to the people's wish. And David becomes a king, and he's got all kinds of problems, but he's got a heart after God, but he's definitely not perfect. And then Solomon becomes king. And again, we get these people who we think they've got everything they need. And yet they still make mistakes. And then we get to what happens after Solomon, which essentially the kingdom splits. So Rehoboam is Solomon's son who has been made king. Jeroboam was one of Saul, or Solomon's, sorry, Solomon's son. Jeroboam is one of Solomon's uh, officials who was ruling part of the kingdom and who is split off in rebellion. Doesn't want to do that, but he did it out of necessity because he wanted to try to protect some people with it. And so they've come together now to, court, to crown Rehoboam, and they're negotiating, hey, can we bring Jeroboam back in to the fold? Can we bring the, the kingdom and keep the kingdom together? So that's the intrigue that's going on as we look at this. We're reading from 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam traveled to Shechem for all of Israel and gathered at Shechem. To make Rehoboam king, when Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard the news, he was still in Egypt. Jeroboam has fled to Egypt with his army, where he had fled from King Solomon and been living ever since. They sent for him, and Jeroboam and the whole Israelite assembly came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying this, Your father made us work too hard. Now, if you lighten the demands he made and you don't make us work as hard, we will serve you. He said to them, this is... Uh, Rehoboam said, he said, go away for three days, then return to me. So the people went away. King Rehoboam consulted with the older advisors who had served his father Solomon when he had been alive. He asked them, how do you advise me to answer these people? They said to him, today, if you show a willingness to help these people, grant their request, they will be your servants from this time forward. So the older advisors are saying, you got this. This is a great opportunity. Look, lighten up. Be more fair. The kingdom will be together. It'll work out. But, right? 
But Rehoboam rejected their advice and consulted with young advisors who served him, with whom he had grown up. He asked them, how do you advise me to respond to the people who said to me, lessen the demands your father placed on us? Now, this is an interesting thing in translations, right? Okay, so this is church where we're supposed to speak. We have to use certain language. The Bible is explicit here. The translation, you miss it, but in the Hebrew, and, and the reason why I bring this out, because I, want, I don't want the force of the message to be lost, of how harsh this response is. But in the Hebrew, this is graphically explicit how Rehoboam responds here. Um, so I'm just giving you a little warning here. The young advisors with who Rehoboam had grown up said to him, Say this to the people you have said. Your father made us work hard, but now lighten our burden. Say this to them. I am a lot harsher with, than my father. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, he is making a graphic metaphor of himself as being bigger than his dad's and harsher than his dad's. And that's what he was going to use on the people of Israel. And I know that's uncomfortable to hear. I know that's uncomfortable with this. But it's here in the text. And it's there for a purpose. To show the hardness and vulgarity of the king's heart in response towards his people. He says, my father demand, imposed heavy demands on you. I will make them even heavier. My father punished you with ordinary whips. I will punish you with whips that really sting the, your flesh. Jeroboam and all the people reported to Rehoboam on the third day, just as the king ordered when he said, return to me on the third day. The king responded to the people harshly. He rejected the advice of the older men and followed the advice of the younger ones. He said, my father imposed heavy demands on you. I will make them even heavier. My father punished you with ordinary whips. I will punish you with whips that really sting your flesh. The king refused to listen to the people because the Lord was instigating this turn of events so that it might be brought to pass, the prophetic announcement that was made through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, son of Nabat. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David. They are rejecting their inheritance. No share in the son of Jesse. Return to your homes of Israel. Now look after your own dynasty, O David. And again, this is harsh, trash-talking language. So Israel returned to their homes. Rehoboam continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the cities of Judah. This is where the kingdom splits. Benjamin and Judah to the south, the ten tribes to the north. With that, they'll never be reunited, and the ten tribes to the north will eventually be conquered and lost altogether, while a remnant in the south will continue to exist as Israel. Now it goes on down a few verses down to verse 25. Jeroboam built up Shechem in the Ephraimite hill country and lived there. From there he went out and built Penuel. Jeroboam himself, Jeroboam then thought to himself, now the Davidic dynasty could regain the kingdom. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, their loyalty could shift to their former master, King Rehoboam of Judah. 
They might kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. After the king had consulted his advisors, he made two golden calves. Then he said to the people, is it too much trouble for you to go up to Israel? Look, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He put one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, as we see in the Bible often, there are thematic elements that repeat over and over and over. The primary one of those is our exile as slaves under the heavy rule of Pharaoh. And also in the wilderness, our temptation to make our own gods, gods in our own image, to be rebels. Slaves or rebels, slaves or rebels. It seems like we're constantly caught between the tension, the dynamic, slavery, rebellion, slavery, slavery, rebellion. Are we submitting to, are we oppressed by, are we facilitating the rule of a pharaoh, of an oppressive king, monarch, where we lose our agency? Or are we running away, finding our freedom in rebellion, but refusing to acknowledge the kingship of God and making our own God, making gods in our own image? setting up golden calves. That type, that story is played out here so clearly. Rehoboam is clearly presented as Pharaoh. Do you see the irony in it? The words are even the same that Rehoboam is repeating. It's like it's coming out of his mouth, the same words that Pharaoh said to Moses, make bricks without straw. Have no day off. I, you come to me asking to, to make it easier, I'll double the workload. I'll double the, the demand for bricks. The very king that God has set on his throne to reflect what is good and true and beautiful has become Pharaoh. So rightfully so, Jeroboam I mean, I can identify so much with Jeroboam, right? He wants to protect his people. Yeah, he wants to protect his own life, but he doesn't want his people to be oppressed, so he leads them out. He cuts off. He takes them out into the wilderness. But just like the people there, just like Aaron did, he creates a false god, creates his own god, a god that he can control, a god that he can manage, a god that he can manipulate with that. And so Jeroboam becomes a type of Aaron, a rebel, someone who thinks they're doing good, is making the most pragmatic choice, but in the end is setting up the people for destruction with that. Y'all, if we think this is inconsequential to, inconsequential to where we are, we're mistaken. Because this is where most of us live in this. We're, we're bound with an imagination that presents us in these situations with only two options. Do we submit? Do we just buckle under and grind under the oppressive law? May it be a God or a boss or an economy or a political system or a health demand? of a marriage or a family or a demand, do we just grind it out? And do we make our choices based on threat and bribe? How do I get along with Pharaoh? How do I just make, make the best I can in this place of slavery? Or do we say, no, I reject that, I'm going out. I'm not going to submit to that anymore. 
And yet, we don't have the imagination for what it means not to be free from kingship, but to really submit ourselves to the kingship of God. And so we end up making our idols. We end up distorting, twisting the word of God, the promises of God, into something that we can control with that. And we live as rebels, even as we worship. Even as we dress nice, smell nice, pay our taxes, do the right things, we're still rebellious in our hearts with that. Instead of understanding, yes, look, there are consequences to our actions, but in Christ we have been adopted. We have been brought into the family of God. We have finally been given the chance to follow the king who has been promised to us from the beginning of time. We finally have the opportunity to live free from the constant stress of threat and bribe, free from the constant fear of submitting ourselves wholly to a God because we're afraid we're going to be abused, we're afraid we're going to be abandoned, we're afraid we're going to be attacked when we're not looking at it. Free to follow God with that. Understanding that our, that our actions still have consequences. Look, it, I'm not saying this doesn't free us from our actions having consequences. But the consequences are there no longer to control or manipulate, to threaten or punish, promise or reward. But the consequences are there to give us discernment. The consequences there to mold us. The consequences there are to teach us. Because the only way to really learn, the only way to really teach, the only way to really get discernment is when we're free from fear. When we know that we are established. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, goes on to talk about discipline. It says all discipline seems harsh at the time. It does. It does. But God disciplines those whom God loves. Why? Because... He's concerned with this great moral order that he has? No. Because he has foredestined us, he has promised us, he is shaping us into God's image. God is giving us discernment to make us into who we were designed to be, to reflect the Imago Dei to carry that image into the world, to bear witness to it, that we no longer have to live as either slaves or rebels, but we can live as citizens in the kingdom of God. So where is the grace here? The grace is that God lets them walk out the consequences of their actions for them to understand that God is the true king. You want to know what the message? You want to know what the message of all of the Old Testament as it relates to the kings and kingdoms of Israel is? Is that those aren't the thing. There is no make Israel great again. There is no nostalgic returning to some imagined idyllic time of David. Even at the height of the kingdom, it was corrupt, abusive, murderous, and idolatrous. The message is that God will have no other kings before God. 
just as God will have no other idols, no other masters. God is king. So he teaches us through the consequences of our actions. Even those wise kings, even when there were wise kings, it was never enough. It never lasts. Our bad choices cause destruction, but this points us back to grace. Let that settle in. The consequences of our actions are there not to just punish us, but to teach us, to turn us, to transform us, to restore us. There's also grace and obedience, though, because it shows that our obedience, our mere obedience, is not enough on its own. God is not trying to give us a list of rules so that we can just be free agents and go out there and do the right thing on our own and everything will be okay. No, even when we do right, it messes up. Listen, the, the things that keep me up at night are not the obvious sins. It's not the temptation to lust or anger or pride or ego. Listen, I know those things are bad, okay? I can go to sleep with that. What keeps me up at night is what am I doing right now that I think is good? What am I doing right now with a good motivation? What am I doing right now thinking that I got it nailed and it's really not? It's still going to cause pain. It's still going to mean work. It's never going to be enough. But even in that, there is grace. Because it turns us to God. It's more than threat or bribe. It's more than transactional. It's not just taking what we have and making a better form of it. It's something altogether different. It's what mitigates the suffering. It's what gives us hope. It's what's worth going all this for. Going through all this for. But y'all... It's so easy to get sucked into thinking that this is all about performing. This is all about earning. More bluntly put, that it's all about threat and bribe. And so we fall back into those old habits of slaves and rebels. Slaves and rebels. Pharaohs and Aaron's. And we need to ask ourselves, do we really want a king? Are not the testimonies of all the kings in the Old Testament, are those not enough? Are there not enough pharaohs for us? Is there not enough wilderness wandering? Not enough centuries of slavery? Not enough eras of oppression? We want freedom just to do it our own way? Just to set up our own golden calves? Are not the testimonies of annihilation enough? Is the wickedness that works in those who seek to be free from God live according to their own appetites and understanding? Is that not painful enough for us? Not destructive enough? We want more disease, death, chaos, abuse? Living on our own, living apart from God, trying to be our own king, trying to make our own gods. Really? We don't have enough testimony, enough for that? I mean, what more do we need? Even if we didn't have the Bible, all we have to do is read the newspaper. 
Click on the links on the news tab and see where all that leads. Slavery and rebellion, two sides of the same coin, two poles of the same tension, just knocking us back, knocking us forward, knocking us back. Listen, there are no shortcuts. There are no easy answers, but there is grace to discern. There is grace to pay attention and to learn. There is grace to live and be and act and move in this world apart from those things. Not in between, not some crazy medium that is unattainable, but totally apart. To have an active gospel imagination that transcends fear. The knowledge that God is working with and in spite of us, in us, frees us to accept the consequences of our actions without fear that they're punishment or that we're going to be cut off from God. But as a gift to lead us to repentance and to wisdom, a way of escaping from the wheel of threat and bribe, reward and punishment as defined by the world, a way to be in the world but not of the world. A way to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and the transformation of our lives into the lives of truly free people. Truly free people. Not returning to the slavery of Pharaoh or the wickedness of rebellion. The question we have is, Grace Church, do we want to be free? Do we want to be free. And while the answer may seem like an obvious, well, yeah, hold up a minute. Because if there is anything that history and the Bible teaches us, is that learning to live as free people is not an easy thing. It is going to upend our lives, our relationships, the way we view things, where we live, how we spend our money, what we view as good, what we view as right, what we view as the good and true and beautiful. Because we've grown up under slavery. We've grown up as rebels. And those habits are ingrained in us. And while not denying that there are consequences to our choices, actually accepting them, but accepting them as something that is good. Something that teaches us. Something that is grace-filled to transform us. It takes a lot more effort than I think any of us can realize. Anything that I've ever realized. As I prepared for this, I thought, how ingrained are the habits of slavery in my life? How ingrained are the attitudes of rebellion? I'm reminded of the Annie Dillard quote where she, walks, where she talks about coming to church and we all Kind of, you know, we took a shower this morning, dressed nice, and got here, sit in these comfortable chairs, and are all nice and orderly. And she goes, you ought to come to church. There ought to be seatbelts on every seat. There ought to be life jackets under your body. It ought to be like when, they, when you get on a plane or a boat, 
like strap on because the weather might get rough. Listen, if we want to be free, strap on, strap in, because the weather's going to be rough. There are 10,000 places you can go and get a nice religious sermon on be good, behave, and God will give you a tootsie roll. And don't slip up, God's going to spank you. Now let's all sing a nice hymn and go home. That's not living as free people. It's not what it takes to live as free people. To live as free people, we've got to put everything on the table. We have to be willing to let our ideas be totally unsettled. Our expectations go unmet and new expectations made on us. But that's where the grace is. It's where the grace is, is for that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to invite you to come to this table. I'm going to invite you to worship. I'm going to invite you to give your money. I'm going to invite you to pray and reflect. Because that's what free people do. You see, free people, living as free people, starts with our identity as daughters and sons. Not as slaves, not as servants, not as soldiers. God doesn't need any of those things. God does not need slaves, soldiers, or servants. God has redeemed us as daughters and sons. Not only heirs, but co-heirs with Jesus is what the, world, what the word says. And that is demonstrated as we come to this table, because this table is God's table. This is the king's table. You don't have to come up and bow before it. You don't have to pay a tax. You don't have to be perfect. Because you're already included as God's child. Co-heir with Jesus. And so we come to the table of God to receive the gifts of God for the work of God in the world. We're not earning anything by being here and we're not disqualified by anything we've done. We're welcome. Everyone is welcome at this table. We also share our gifts here because it's a demonstration that none of us is without something to give. None of us is without need. So we share because we're family. That's what families do. But also we reflect here because I'm not God. I am not the Holy Spirit. Do not put that on me. You need to reflect and find out what was said today, what you felt today. What do you need to do about that? Write it down. Take it to your grace group. Discuss it in community. Reflect on it. But don't just believe it because I said it. That's not how it works. Don't make me your golden calf. Take this time to seriously reflect on this. Come to the table. Eat or take the gifts of God, the broken body, the poured out blood, the sign of the loving, eternal faithfulness of God towards us, the inclusion of us as daughters and sons. 
And as that inhales us together into this place, be exhaled into the world as witness and testimony of the goodness of God. So what we do here is as you come up, we don't dismiss by rows, come up as you're, as you're able. If you can, sit close, hold the elements. We'll take them all together after we sing a song together. Thank you for being here.